In this episode, we're having a conversation with Jim Julius. Jim Julius is our faculty director of online education at Maricosta College. And in our mini series here on going remote, we're going to ask him some questions and hopefully uh, help some people out with information and some resources that we desperately need during this time of uncertainty. So, hey, Jim, how you doing? Hey, thanks for having me here, guys. I'm really um, glad to be able to provide whatever support I can. Um, I, as I think people know, I've been working a lot with Sean, and Sean and I are going to continue to provide all kinds of collaboration and resources for faculty. So if you haven't been paying attention to your email, <laughs> keep looking for that, because there's going to be all kinds of good stuff coming at you from the two of us, um, and Sean's a great partner in this work right now. So your job has always been big on campus, but I feel like it has been behind the scenes a lot with online education. And now you're thrusted into the forefront of what we're doing here with this transition to remote instruction. So can you just give a little brief uh, background on your office and then how your role is quickly evolving here as we make this transition? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're accurate in saying that. Um, I think when I, when I took this position at Maricosta, I actually did expect it to be a lot more engaged in kind of, you know, faculty support and, and that kind of thing, and really engaged with, with teaching, teaching online and, and how to do that. I think Maricosta has an incredible history and culture of faculty supporting faculty and, and a very department-specific orientation around each department working with faculty within their departments. And so between that and the fact that there were a lot of things that I realized having my position being brand new, that there were some expectations from things like the state and ACCJC as far as getting us up to speed with meeting regulations and crafting policies and procedures. Not real exciting work, but necessary work. So there's been a lot of work over the years with just kind of getting our foundation built up a little higher on which we can construct, I think, um, maybe more consistent college-wide um, support for faculty. Because while we do have many departments that do an excellent job of supporting faculty, other departments are a little bit more you know, up to each faculty to figure out what works for themselves. And, and a lot of people have reached out over the years saying, you know, they teach at other colleges, potentially if they're associate faculty, they're used to having a clear set of kind of guidelines or expectations or training requirements and they want to know what we have at Miracosta and it's it, it hasn't been as clear I think um, over the years the Miracosta online educators committee has developed some really important documents um, that we that we now make available to faculty things like online class quality guidelines um, and so there has been a, a movement over the years I would say that right now there's some emergency stuff happening that's even as you said, kind of thrusting my role into that spotlight. But I think we were already moving more and more in that direction. Um, last year, when I was on sabbatical at this time, I developed a distance education handbook, which also eventually will serve as, a, as a, maybe the first of several courses that we offer locally at Maricosta for faculty to come up to speed on what the expectations are, kind of the minimum guidelines, um, some effective practices, Folks like you two do an incredible job of being um, part of this growing cohort of faculty that I think really seek to connect with other faculty and provide college-wide support 
um, not necessarily just only within your department. So, yeah, I think at this moment, a lot of people's eyes are being opened and, and it's maybe pushing us a little further in that direction, but um, I think it's a direction we've already been moving for a long time. Yeah, and, and given that my, my experience teaching online, I came in when um, pot was really strong and right. doing regular you know, conversation. Online teaching? Well, yes, that's right. I still, in my heart, I but what I so what I've appreciated from um, um, your office, Jim, is you know uh, the program for online teaching. Their their mantra was pedagogy first, right? Jim Julius, Lisa Lane, and I've always felt like like your your leadership has been really responsive to that, right? Even moving from the wild west of summer on canvas summer on blackboard summer on moodle it was this very deliberative you know let's go listen to students let's go listen to faculty let's let's really find something that's fitting fitting the pedagogy right the ethos of this of, of the campus as we move forward um yeah. into these more consistent programs right um right. and so and 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 um we don't we don't have to necessarily jump this quickly into the conversation about moving a remote but do you feel like, uh, I feel like in what I've heard so far that that's still the spirit of what we're doing. We still wanna honor academic freedom. We still wanna honor folks' pedagogy. We don't wanna impose anything on everybody. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important point to make right from the start. I've gotten several questions from people that feel like they're hearing that certain tools are being mandated or certain tools are being you know, uh, eliminated as possible ways that faculty would continue instruction remotely. And I mean, everything that I've heard suggests that is not the case, that administrators are very aware that um, the point right now is flexibility. The watchword is for both faculty and students, flexibility, compassion, make it work. Yeah. Let's get through this semester with um, allowing students to continue to progress toward their educational goals however we possibly can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I agree with what you said. I don't think there's any particular expectation that certain tools will be used or not used. Um, there are certain tools that I think make most sense and that more colleagues are going to be using. And, you know, if people are going to go off in a different direction, um, I think you just have to recognize that maybe the students might struggle a bit more because that might not be as familiar a tool. But it's still really going to be down to to you as an individual faculty figuring out what's going to work for you and your students. Yeah, cool. Yeah, thanks for that. And so with this transition to remote teaching and learning here, if you're having a conversation with a faculty member that just comes up and goes, what does this mean for me? I teach a lecture-based course and, you know, um, there's a lot of things that I do face-to-face -face and I don't really use, you know, the LMS Canvas too much. What would be your first kind of things that you advise uh, for this faculty to consider and think about? Well, I tend to start with questions <laughs> rather than just launching into advice. And my first question would be to try to really understand the details of what they do use Canvas for to this point, what their experience has been. And, and the, the fact is that um, we don't have a whole lot of credit classes that don't have some kind of presence in Canvas but I don't know the details on that. So, I, you know, I think a, a minimal expectation for how I would see most folks trying to continue online would be placing assignments in Canvas 
placing some content links or content resources in Canvas and using Canvas as kind of a communication hub. And by grading the assignments, you're, you're pretty much creating a grade book that students can check and, and maintain their progress. To me, that's kind of the, the minimal hope. So I would, I would try to gauge from faculty, have you had students turn in assignments previously in Canvas? If not, that's something you're gonna to need to come up to speed on. Have you done grading in Canvas for anything? Have you used the grade book at all? If not, that's another big thing to come, come up to speed on. Um, have you posted at least a syllabus in Canvas? If you have, then you have a basic idea of how you post content in Canvas. It's not too difficult. The interface for creating content is a lot like a Google Doc or a word processor, all those kinds of tools. So, you know, that's kind of the starting point, the minimum point. I think the next level beyond that is if you're somebody that will feel like you're depriving students a little bit of the, the experience of hearing your voice and of engaging in some kind of lecture or discussion interaction, then we need to start talking about whether you're interested in trying to, to have a live option. And if you're doing that, Zoom's great. If, you're trying, if you are interested in recording some mini lectures, then there are options. You could use Zoom for that as well. You could use Canvas Studio, which is built right into Canvas. You could use Snagit, which is a tool that's available to all of our faculty for installation at home even. So there's, there's several options on that, but that's kind of, I would say, level two is um, beyond just posting information, receiving assignments, maintaining communication, and, and keeping grades, level two would be actually creating opportunities for students to hear your voice as you're working with them through content. How about, so uh, I know for myself, a couple of years ago, I moved away from storing all of my con uh, uh, class materials on pen drives because I kept losing <laughs> them and leaving them in classrooms, right? And so I, I started saving them uh, on the, uh, is it the C drive? Is that what I have access to on campus? Uh. I think it's maybe H drive or I drive. That's what it is. It's H drive. Yeah. And that <laughs> yeah. means probably zero to anybody. But what helped me out having given up the pen drive was I had, uh, I found out I have access to a virtual desktop at home and I don't, we don't have to get into this very much, but, but uh, uh, for me, that was, it meant I didn't have to go to my, my office on campus to get to the files I wanted to update for class next week. Um, this virtual desktop um, allowed me access to that H drive. Um, a lot of us have moved away from that even. We're in Google Drive now as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll put in, in the, um, a link somewhere around this podcast for information about how to get to the virtual um, um, desktop. But Jim, do you know, do we have to set up an account for that? Or full-timers, do we have automatic access to that? that right. Group? So, um, yeah, this is a big deal. I know AIS has really been working on um, how to support faculty that may need that kind of virtual access from home. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, it's not super simple. If you don't already have the VMware virtual desktop on a, on a computing device that you can take home with you, um, AIS has to set that up physically in person. You have to bring that device to them. Okay. And it takes like an hour, I, I have heard, um, to get that all set up. So if that seems like something that's gonna be important to you to have virtual access to MiraCosta resources from home, a lot of things you don't need that for, but the example that you're giving right now, that H drive is an example of one that you really do yeah. need to have um, that, that virtual software, the virtual desktop software. So okay. 
that would be one of those ASAP. If you realize you need that, you need to, to connect with AIS and figure out how to get that done. Right. Yeah. Because if all my files are on my computer in my office, then I got to find a way to get to them. Right. I, I mean, at a time like this, I'm very hesitant to push new tools upon people because I think that's just another layer of things to learn. Oh, yeah. But, but I would say that I don't use a virtual drive at all because I'm a big fan of Google Drive and I'm a big fan of Dropbox and I use both of those as cloud-based storage tools. Yeah. Um, and they're not officially supported by the college, so you're kind of on your own when you choose to use them, but it does give you tremendous flexibility. Um, and so if that sounds like the kind of thing that you've been like telling yourself for a long time, oh, I really want to start getting into those, or maybe you've dabbled with them, then an alternative, if, the, if your concern is really just the iDrive, to come to campus and set up a Dropbox or Google Drive if you need to set one up, and then just copy that stuff from your campus computer in there, and then you, you've got it and you can start working with it from any device at home without worrying about the virtual desktop access. Cool, right on. So along those lines of what faculty need to know, what should we be avoiding because of FERPA and privacy laws and things like that? What, what tools do you think that, or, or ways of communicating with students should we be aware of and know that probably not the best route, even in this emergency situation. Right. Well, yeah. So one of the things, of course, in, with my job is being really familiar with the, the variety of regulations that apply strictly to distance education. And even though we're avoiding calling what we're doing distance education, we're calling it remote instruction. I mean, the fact is, it really is when we, when we teach online through the use of communication technology, we are doing distance education. And um, you know there are specific regulations at the state level, at the federal level, specific things our, reg our, our accreditors look for in distance education. And I don't think all of those things are absolutely going to be you know, under the microscope at this point. But there are some things that I think people can understand are important. And you mentioned FERPA, student privacy is one of those. So for example, with regard to student privacy, one of the scenarios we thought through in terms of kind of a minimal technology use would be, is it possible for a faculty member to teach a, a remote class entirely via email? Mm -hmm. So if you were just say using SURF to send out emails to your class and then inviting students, you know, maybe you're attaching assignments and attaching content and sending links through email and then expecting your students to send work back to you through email. The, the problem is you can't, FERPA tells you specifically that you cannot um, discuss student work or assignments or class progress through email. Mm. So you can't, you wouldn't be able to let the students know, here's the grade you got on your work. You wouldn't be able to say to students, hey, you've got an 85 in the class so far. Um, so, it, you know, there's a limit that, even that kind of approach bumps up against because of FERPA. And so for that reason, I think we're saying, you know, the minimal remote instruction really probably needs to include the Canvas gradebook so that you can get students feedback on how they're doing. You know, another example or another kind of regulatory issue is accessibility. And I think this is important to discuss. We at Maricosta maybe are a little bit behind overall, even though I think most 
faculty teaching online are really aware of the need to, to provide accessible resources and, and be considerate of accessibility. But I think overall, it's still not completely clear for, for us as an institution and culturally, um, we haven't really embraced the mandate for accessibility in the way that some other institutions have. So I think this might be a, a, a new or unfamiliar um, territory for some folks that are new to remote instruction. So the message generally for teaching online is that everything must be compliant with accessibility regulations. Yeah. And that's that in and of itself, there's a lot to unpack in what that means. <laughs> there are some effective practices and some, you know, some easier things to do than other things. I think a lot of people are aware in particular of captioning, for example. Right. What I think sometimes gets overemphasized though is that people start to get hyper aware of these needs sometimes and don't realize there are some nuances. So for example, people think, oh my gosh, you know, I can't have, you know, I can't do video feedback for my students, which is a cool thing that you can do in the Canvas gradebook if it's not captioned. Well, that's a one-to-one -one piece of feedback. And if that student that you're providing that feedback to doesn't require accommodation, captioning is not required. Right. On a larger scale, I would take the position, and I think this is fairly clear, although I think a lot of people are scared to say this, yeah. that creating resources for a specific class that you don't expect to have a shelf life beyond that class. If you don't have somebody in that class with a stated need for accommodation, then it's not an absolute necessity to, to meet every accessibility requirement because it's very focused on that specific class. In general, the, the accessibility rules are designed with you with in mind that things could be used across multiple classes and that you want to be prepared ahead of time rather than having to reactively fix things that weren't created to be accessible. Yeah. So if people are creating lecture video on the fly and you know you don't have a student who's hard of hearing in the class with an accommodation requirement, it's not absolutely necessary that you have perfect captions. It's still, I think, great. It's an ideal. I think lots of people benefit from captions. And I think it's getting easier and easier to have captions. Our tools that do auto captioning are getting better and better. It's also really easy to fix those up. But I wouldn't want somebody to get the message of, if you're going to do lecturing, you must have captioning. And if you're not going to be able to get perfect captions, then forget it. Don't do it. Because yeah. you'll be in violation of accessibility. I think that's, that's the wrong message. Yeah. So that, that's an important one to think about. Can I push that just a little bit? Because I think in this current situation, it's it's so uh, uncertain, right? That as you said earlier, we want to meet our students' needs kind of by any means possible. But there's other issues of accessibility that we're going to face that are unique to this situation, such as mm -hmm. students who choose on-site classes for the very reason they don't have access to technology or they have very right. limited data plans at home. Right. Um, and there's there's some resources being rolled out to meet those needs. But it just makes me think, Jim, that probably one of the first things that we ought to be doing as faculty is polling our, our specific students, because then we'll have a really clear understanding of these are the accessibility issues that I need to be aware of as right. I move forward. Yeah, I mean, there's accessibility with a capital A, which is kind of defined with very specific technological requirements. And then there's kind of the, the small A accessibility, which is what you're speaking to, which is just enabling students who may not be familiar with learning online, who may not have great access to technology. And even beyond that, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, if my class was set to meet at a certain time, 
then I'm just going to use Zoom, which I think is really cool. It's a great idea at that time because, hey, the students were already committed to that time. But, you know, everything is changing right now in our, in our students' lives. They have kids home from school. They may have work situation changing. They may lose jobs and need to take other jobs. We cannot possibly count on the fact that what was true two weeks ago is still true in these students' lives right now. So if we want them to continue to have access to the opportunity to continue in our classes, we're going to have to be flexible. So I'm all for Zoom. I think it's a great idea. But don't be taking attendance in Zoom and requiring that people attend live. Record the session, make it available for students to view after the fact, um, and be very flexible with how your students are going to be able to, to participate going forward in everything that you would provide. Uh, a colleague of mine in my department, his name's Javi Prescott, uh, he created a Google form with some pretty simple questions like, you know, like, what is your schedule? What do you yeah. have access to? So maybe we can, he's already given us permission to, to share that within the department. I'm sure he'll be fine with this, sharing it with everybody. Yeah, but, I think yeah. the sooner that we can start sharing these kinds of things that probably everybody's thinking about, the better. Yeah. Um, I, I do just want to throw in at this point, and I know we're probably going to get to a wider discussion of, of student resources and and more student-facing ideas, but there is, um, for faculty that aren't aware, the Miracosta Care Team, which is led by Nick Mortelloni, is really trying to think about a lot of these kinds of issues. So I'm considering them kind of like the, the authoritative central place for these kinds of questions about what about students that don't have access to internet at home or don't have high-speed you know, technology at home, don't have Food, food is an issue. We're closing yeah, down the right. food pantry and the farmer's right. market on campus. So, you know, all of those kinds of just life support things, the care team's doing a great job of assembling resources. So that's a, it's going to be a really important resource for faculty to, to be aware of and point their students toward when they start getting things back. And then they're like, well, what do I do about this? That's not my job. I don't know how to handle that. The care team is probably the number one place for a lot of that. Cool. Yeah. No, that's great. That, that, that's a great resource. And so I guess that moves us into this student discussion. And what, you know, a lot of students are like, I did not intend to take an online class. I'm not comfortable with that. You know, there's a lot of concerns, those being the minimum and, you know, a lot more being more extreme. Like, what, what, what do we tell students during this time in this move to remote instruction and maybe a modality that they are totally not comfortable you know, engaging with. Yeah, um, so I think a lot of folks hopefully know that I've been providing a um, workshop for students, a one hour workshop that's both in person and online called Student Orientation to Online Learning for a while. And so I've thought a lot about, you know, and, and engaged directly with students over the years. Thousands of students have gone through that one hour workshop. And so I think there's several different things that that are important. and but. For faculty that are feeling like they're new to it, their students are new to it, the key messages are we're in it together, we're learning together, we're giving each other space to figure this out together. If I mess up, please let me know. I will try to coach you as well when I see that you might have you know, not turned in an assignment correctly because you weren't comfortable with it. So I think, again, that idea of flexibility and compassion applies very much. Um, across the board. We need to get, cut ourselves some slack. We need to laugh at ourselves a little bit. We need to know that, that students also have that same freedom because the flip side, and I tell students this in the student orientation, if you're not real comfortable with technology, this is extra learning that you're going to be doing. 
just the process of getting comfortable with the technology. But that is a great thing to be learning mm. in this day and age to come out the other side of an online class with just a greater comfort level in using technology, the internet, communicating online, developing those kinds of skills. That's a benefit that will last you forever along with the content of the class. So I think that that's really important. But the, the I think another stereotype that some students bring to online learning, and I would guess especially students who have been kind of avoiding it and thinking that it's not for them, is that it's, it's like an independent study almost. Like they're on their own and they have to just muddle through it on their own. So I think that the key message for those students is that's not true. There's so many resources that are available to you. The number one resource is the faculty member. Faculty are there because they want students to succeed. They're excited when students reach out to them. They don't want those, they don't want students to have that feeling. They want students to know that they're available, that they're gonna, that they are ready to answer their questions and connect with them um, and get them through. But beyond that, especially in this time when we're closing our campus, we may have students that are used to coming to campus for all kinds of resources and support online. The college already has tons of things available on, I, I'm sorry, resources and things in person, but the college has tons of things online, um, has already moved plenty of tutoring and library resources and counseling resources uh, to make those things available online. And, and uh, that's just gonna be increased for the rest of the spring semester. So making sure that as faculty members, we are aware of what's available to our students and we're pointing our students in those directions. And if you are a student knowing um, about those and not hesitating to take advantage, whether it's tech support, whether it's tutoring, whether it's using online library resources, whether it's counseling or other student support services, knowing that that's all out there and that you should not, in the moment of frustration, keep banging your head against your computer. Turn to, to those resources for support. Yeah, and one of those is, you know, we were fortunate to be a pilot for the student uh, support hub that is available to students via Canvas, and that's where they can kind of look for things like online tutoring, online counseling. Um, you know, the, the library has 24-7 uh, chat features, so all of those are available to students, and we want faculty and students to know that those are in the, uh, for, for students, it's in their dashboard and already a Canvas card that they can access, and then for faculty, it's on that left universal navigation bar that they can see uh, the student support hub there, right? Yeah, and students have that on their navigation bar too. Yeah, they can click that student support button anytime. Cool, and now let's talk a little bit about the, the distinction here and the difference between remote instruction, what we are now facing uh, with moving the face-to-face -face courses to um, some remote modality and uh, kind of versus this idea of online education and online teaching and learning. Like, yeah. what, what do you see as the differences there? Yeah, um, if I can digress and tell a personal story for just a second. So Mike, I have two, I have three kids and two of them are college age, but they've both come home because their, their institutions are shutting down for the spring and, and they'll be doing online learning from home. Nice. Um, and um, so one of them just came home and she was talking about one of the classes that just wrapped up for her in her winter quarter. It was a 
it was a literature class, but they were watching film versions of the books and, and doing some comparisons. And she used a great word, which is affordances. So in that class, they were talking about the difference of the affordances of written word and literature versus the affordances of media and why some narrative formats work better in one or the other. And you, there isn't like a direct equivalent necessarily. Yeah. So that word affordances I love because I think of it as an educational technology word because we talk about like what are the affordances of the classroom environment? What is really works well about a traditional classroom environment where you have desks and chairs and whiteboard and people in the same place at the same time? And conversely, what are the affordances of online learning environments, which typically are asynchronous, meaning that we're not all in there at the same time, um, that we have you know, the ability to post lots of different resources and collect things online and have students engage with online resources, they're not the same. So, you know, I think what we're doing right now with remote instruction is trying to not get people overly engrossed in, wow, you're shifting to online. Let's think about this whole new world that you're entering and how you can reconceive student learning and your teaching for this online environment that has a different set of affordances. No, we're, we're not, I don't think we're pushing people to do that. We're, we're just trying to say, if you would have done this in class, how can you do something like that online and just keep things going? But I think it's really important to recognize that, that if you have more time to think about how you would teach online, how you would have your students learning online, you would really want to think through um, from the kind of the ground up, what are my outcomes? What are my assessments? What kind of content is going to support my students to get there? And how does that all work in an online environment compared to, an, to a classroom environment? Some things might look very similar, but some things might completely blow up and reconceive for how you do that online. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is we're not asking people to blow up and reconceive next week. Um, during our week of transition. We're just asking people to think about how to do as best as possible um, the things that are going to help students get to your basic outcomes for the class. Yeah, and I think to an extent probably all of us have experienced this uh, one way or another when we've been assigned a classroom that we really don't like, mm -hmm. right? I, I'm, I, when I was teaching at Cal State San Marcos, I got uh, assigned to a classroom that was a computer lab, but all the computers were on the walls, right? And all the desks faced the walls. And then I stood in the middle with all my students looking away from me. <laughs> that was the situation I had to teach in. And it wasn't, I'm going to take exactly what I did last semester and do it this semester because it just wouldn't work, right? The space was different. But I had to go back to, well, what do I want them to get to? What's the outcome? And then what can I do in this space to get them there? How can I move them? What can I, right? Um, and so it's, it's similar thinking moving online. I really appreciate that. That, that concept of affordances, because that's exactly how I, I think about it too. And going into a full online class, it takes a long time to think through that stuff. But I think if we think about what we're asking, being asked to do right now, it is sort of showing up on the first day and going, oh, this is my classroom. Well, <laughs> I've got to change a couple things to make this work. Yeah, and it's those affordances. It's, you know, I've, uh, when, before I got my full-time job, it was freeway flying and I had to teach at a high school, an evening class, where it was basically we had to 
come into this classroom. And I felt like I was like breaking into a place and, and then like, <laughs> class and then, you know, it, we had to make sure like there was no evidence that we were ever there. And so, you know, going to all these different spaces and having to adjust. And I think that's where our associate faculty have, you know, um, a benefit here that they, that they have to make those adjustments all the time based on different institutional requirements, different departmental requirements, um, different classrooms and different campuses. So, you know, this is a major adjustment for all of us. Mm-hmm. And I think just knowing that we, we, we should consider that word affordances and also always with that message of flexibility and being kind to ourselves and, and to the students during this period is, you know, an important message to continually reinforce because we know that, you know, people get set in ways of doing things. I, I'm definitely subject to that as well. And that's all going to have to be fluid. And, and we're going to have to, um, again, do the best we can to, to make it to at least the finish line of this spring semester and, and see what we're facing uh, moving forward. Right. So if, uh, let me tell a story. So I used to be a fourth, fifth grade teacher. And then uh, I went back to, to school to, to get a doctorate in educational technology. And I started teaching college classes. And the classes that I taught were some in person, but mostly online. And then I taught an undergraduate college class. And it was sort of this surreal experience where I realized like having a discussion right now is weird because only one person at a time can talk. And I'm used to this online discussion where multiple voices in multiple threads can be happening. And yeah. it's not, you're not limited to like one person talking and everybody having to think about that right. and then moving on. It was a little weird. Um, so I actually <laughs> had people live in the classroom using an online discussion board so that people weren't constrained to one yeah. thought in that moment. Right. Um, but, but the, the story, or I guess what I wanted to point out with that is that when I do the student orientation online learning, I try to point out to students that I think, again, sometimes we have this conception that online is like a shadow of on ground. It's like an unfortunate thing that we're doing because people's lives are so busy and we're trying to give them access and it's the only way that we could offer a class like this for some students, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do it. So, you know, we do it, but it's not quite as good. Um, but I try to point out that there are some things that I consistently hear from faculty and students that surprise them when they're new to online. And one of those is about discussions, because I think we have this sort of ideal in our mind that, wow, being in the same room at the same time allows for real authentic interaction, right? right? But I think in a lot of places, if you look at how many voices are really heard during a session, unless you're a faculty member that's very intentional about ensuring that every student has a chance to speak and that, you know, really tracking that and trying to make systems to make that happen. Or if you're somebody that does most of the talking yourself, there really aren't, I think, in a typical classroom, a lot of voices. And even if you do a lot to try to bring the opportunity for everybody to speak, there are folks in your classroom that just aren't very comfortable being on the spot. They'd rather have time to think about what they'd say. They don't want to look silly. Maybe English isn't their first language. So when you get to an online space where you have discussion boards and everybody is expected to contribute to a discussion board, it's even graded, but people have time to reflect upon what they say. They have time to really put their best foot forward. They have time to look for a response that's really interesting and respond to that. Right. Um, people, I've heard many times people say, I'm really surprised. I felt like at the end of an online class, 
I knew my classmates better right. and more completely than <laughs> a lot of classes on ground because, because of that fact that everybody is speaking every week in a discussion board, for example. Sorry, it closely resembles like what they do in other platforms, right? Like social media and other spaces. Right. They comment and post, they can view something, think about it, right? I mean, that's kind of the classic thing in an in-class situation where does anybody have any questions? What would somebody want to say about this? And we don't allow enough time for them to actually think about that, reflect, maybe bounce ideas off of each other. And what you're saying here is that the discussion board and those online modalities actually provide those opportunities for them to take the time and, and to consider what other people are saying so that the conversation can be more robust. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing that I hear from students a lot that they really like about online is that they're in control over receiving content. And so I think there, another misconception that some people have about online classes is that they're quote unquote self-paced. Mm. Um, you know, for the most part, we don't offer truly self-paced classes. Students can't like race ahead and finish the whole semester in a week or two if they want to, or fall behind and then catch up all at the end. But on a, typically on like on a week to week basis, you do have a lot of control over when you work on things. And in particular, I think for a lot of students, the ability to review content at their pace. Like if material is really challenging, they can keep going back through it. They're not captive in a classroom where if they walk in five minutes late, <laughs> you know, that material is just gone. If they're spacing out or tired that day, they're missing right. out. If the yeah. faculty member is confusing to them or it's a really complex topic, there's not a rewind button for them, right? Right, right. But, but in the in the online classroom space, students really can take ownership over how much, how deeply, how much they go back over that content to, to really make sense of it. So I think that's another pleasant surprise that a lot of people don't really think through, but then realize that online in some ways is more conducive for their learning. Yeah. And I know everyone right now is facing the, the challenges of this, so it's hard to think bright side, but, <laughs> but, it's so true. Every every person I know who's who's adopted uh, uh, moved into the online space, almost almost across the board, will say, and and now I'm using those tools in my on-site classes mm -hmm. too, right? Mm -hmm. And so you you your teaching benefits so greatly, I think, from this work. And I think at the end of it, all of us will be able to probably say that um, this was hard, this was super challenging, but there's some cool stuff we did that I surprised me, and I might continue to adopt those sorts of things moving forward. So I think that's good to sort of put out there. Yeah, especially the piece on um, access to content and communication. Everybody will be more equipped to do that in, in various ways uh, on the other side of this. So even if they're not thinking about teaching online, you know, um, teaching a full class online, at least they'll be able to utilize, you know, our learning management system canvas in ways that maybe they hadn't before. And um, yeah, everybody's going to get a whole lot of learning in, in the next few weeks as we figured this out. Mm -hmm. yeah. For sure. Um, so I guess maybe like a final thing here, Jim, while we have you is kind of, uh, if you have a message for folks, maybe first steps or even just a general message about this move to remote learning, uh, something that you'd like to tell faculty, students, 
as, as we move into our week of preparation and we move into remote learning the following week, just kind of what you would like to tell our listeners. Hmm. Well, I think I've, I've already said it, but I think I said it more aimed at students than at faculty. But the number one thing is you're not in this alone. You don't have to muddle through it by yourself. Um, the Miracosta community is amazing. I was mentioning earlier this faculty supporting faculty community, and that is as true as ever. Um, Sean and I have been coordinating faculty who have been willing to support their fellow faculty. Um, and we have, I think it's somewhere between 50 and 60 different people right now that have reached out to us, offering mm -hmm. their support. Um, if you haven't seen it, Sean sent out an email this week with a with a disciplinary spreadsheet with faculty for almost every discipline who have volunteered themselves to be available to their colleagues within their discipline, kind of on a one-to-one -one support basis. And then many of those folks and others um, will be doing workshops and providing one-on-one -on -one consultation via Zoom next week during the transition week. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, that's gonna be great. And, and I, you know, it's not gonna end. At once the transition week happens, I don't think anybody is expecting everybody is 100% transitioned by Friday of the transition week, right? Um, we just want people to be on their way to at least have a few weeks ready to go, and then we'll keep working on it. And there will continue to be support um, from Sean and me and Karen Turpin and the, the Office of Online Education, and undoubtedly faculty within departments will continue to support their fellow faculty and and we'll see what needs are emergent if there's continued uh, demand for workshops and and things like that sean and i will figure that out and, and definitely respond but we also have the canvas 24 7 helpline for faculty which i don't want people to forget about that's an amazing resource if you're frantically working at two in the morning trying to finish some things up and you can't figure out why canvas isn't cooperating with you you can call that number. They're super good faculty that use that are really happy with them as a support tool as well. Um, so that's the number one thing. You're, you're, you're not on your own. You're not in it by yourself. There's a whole community of support. Number two is it's okay to make mistakes. I always tell people, faculty, when you're trying new things with students, don't, don't try to look polished and great let your yeah. students know that you're experimenting that we're figuring this out you want to know you want to hear from them if it's working for them or if they have ideas about what might be better um you know just go into that to it with that kind of mindset rather than you know oh, i'm gonna look silly with my students and i can't stand that right. you know gotta gotta lighten up a little bit and just uh go with the flow and and have your students really feel like they have ownership in that process rather than the students feeling awkward about um, about the whole thing. Yeah. Yelling at Canvas is in our theme song. It's in our introduction before every episode. So that, that's inevitable. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you for your time, uh, Jim. We know that you are probably, you know, you're, you're in demand right now. And for you to take out, you know, an hour of your busy schedule this week, uh, we really appreciate it. And we hope that our listeners really benefit from the things that you've had to say. And we would like to invite you back, um, not just during this time, but when things resume and are a little more normal and uh, join us for conversations in the future on our uh, Safe Topics podcast. Yeah, oh, well, I'm really excited to see, I mean, I shouldn't say excited. I think the circumstances aren't ideal, but 
one of the things that comes out of this will be, I think, a lot more faculty having a lot more experiences to share with each other and to build upon. So hopefully that's more for better than for worse. But I'm glad to be here, and, and thanks for having me today. Cool. Thank you, Jim. This episode was produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia created the show notes and manages our social media. Episodes of the Safe Topics podcast are now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please download and subscribe. Thank you for listening.